Welcome to Tiski Sour. It's been a pretty dramatic 48 hours in Westminster. Boris Johnson has given his first apology in Parliament since being fined and got into a row with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Keir Starmer, for his part, has been accused of weaponizing people's grief over COVID. I have to say, not by a particularly persuasive politician. First, though, we do have a very important story, which is Julian Assange and the decision which was made today by a magistrate to approve his extradition. Um, I'll be joined in a little while by Dahlia Gabriel for the rest of the show. I have an expert guest for Assange. For the past two years, Julian Assange has been locked up in Belmarsh Prison as he fights extradition to the United States. The WikiLeaks founder faces charges of espionage related to the publishing of classified US cables, which were leaked to the organisation by Chelsea Manning in 2010. If extradited, Assange would become the first person to be prosecuted for espionage for practising journalism. And if convicted, he could face 175 years in prison. It's a disgrace, and unfortunately, it's an outcome that seems closer than ever. That's because a magistrate has today approved the US extradition request. It follows a decision last month by the UK Supreme Court to refuse to hear an appeal from Assange's lawyers as to the status of US assurances that he won't face the death penalty. The decision as to whether to extradite Assange is now in the hands of Home Secretary Priti Patel. Following the ruling, Assange's wife, Stella Morris, delivered this statement. Today was a formality, but I still felt sick to my stomach about what happened today. A magistrate signing an order to send Julian to the United States. The UK has no obligation to extradite Julian Assange to the United States. In fact, it is required by its international obligations to stop this extradition. Boris Johnson and Priti Patel don't extradite Julian to the country that conspired to murder him. Boris Johnson and Priti Patel can stop this at any time. They can stop it today. They can stop this nightmare today and return Julian to his family. They can do the right thing and enforce Article 4 of the US-UK Extradition Treaty, which prohibits extraditions for political offences. Right now, they're in breach of their own treaty. To find out more about the significance of today's ruling, I spoke earlier to someone who has reported extensively on the case, Matt Kennard from Declassified UK. This is the first time that the UK will have extradited the journalists to a second country ever in its history. And clear away the propaganda, what's happening here. The United States has requested a journalist be extradited to the, to the US to face 175 years in prison because it doesn't like his reporting and didn't like his reporting of war crimes committed in Afghanistan and in Iraq. That's basically it. These crimes, in inverted commas, were not even committed in the US. They were, he was in the UK and other places when uh, he's alleged to have done what, what they want to get him for. The UK courts have said that's fine. If it eventually goes through, that gives the US the right to go around the world to any country. And remember, Assange is an Australian citizen. So and pick up any citizen from any country and bring them to the US because it doesn't like their reporting. It's extremely 
scary for anyone who does journalism or publishing or is doing anything which is likely to upset the US government, which is, of course, the most powerful and violent government in the world. So it's another stage along that process. I think that it's not the end at all, because while Preeti Patel is nearly certain she'll sign it, because she's enmeshed in the neoconservative and intelligence establishment in the US and UK. She will sign it, but I think after that, the um, uh, Assange's defence lawyers have the chance to then appeal the original verdict by District Judge Vanessa Baretza, which is actually important because Baretza's original decision agreed with the US indictment basically every dot and comma, apart from at the end of it all, she said his mental health is not strong enough to withstand American prison conditions and we're going to block on those grounds. But actually, she'd already put a nail in the coffin for press freedom in the UK with that original ruling. So now, hopefully, the the defence will get a chance to pick apart that original ruling. And also, of course, the political nature of the case. Political uh, extraditions are not allowed to happen under the US-UK extradition treaty and this is clearly a political case so all that hopefully will come out in court again but as we've seen repeatedly in this case it's impossible to have any kind of confidence in the UK judicial process because it's clearly been captured by the state and I know that sounds extreme but I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it and you you can see it all along we've done a ton of work at Declassified showing the links between the political system and stuff that's happening in the courtroom that goes way back to 2018 when a Westminster chief magistrate made two key rulings against Assange. Her husband was a Tory lord and defence minister. And then subsequent to that, the High Court decision in December was taken by Lord Chief Justice Burnett, who was a 40-year good friend of Alan Duncan, who was the UK minister who orchestrated Assange's arrest in 2019. So, I mean, these are clear links between the political system and what's happening in the courtroom. None of it's had any impact when it's been revealed on on the case at all. And it's just going through each stage. So even if Assange's defence team get this this appeal chance, I don't I don't hold out any uh, hope for, for, for stuff that will happen in the courtroom. Having said that, I think what could have an impact is public pressure. And I mean, you're seeing it with civil society. Civil society across the board, there's literally no civil society group, press freedom group, human rights group that's not against the extradition to the US. I think that does have an impact. The sector that hasn't really done it, the work it should is the media. The media itself, the mainstream media, has hardly covered it at all. And in, in fact, done zero investigations of the judicial process around Assange, which is just rife with conflicts of interest and all sorts of irregularities that we've covered at Declassified. But we're a small operation without much outreach. If, if the mainstream media really got involved in this, it could change the course of the trial. So those two things... Will, uh, hopefully will pick up. And I think that the UK government knows that this is going to cause huge reputational damage to the UK. Could we talk a bit more about this question of connections between judges and politicians or, or state officials? You know, people will be used to this idea that if you've got someone on the jury who might have a vested interest in the case going one way or the other, a lawyer can make an objection and try and get that person removed from the jury and replaced. Is there anything equivalent to that when it comes to judges? Can, can Assange's lawyers say you, Judge, seem to have close connections to someone with a vested interest in Julian Assange being extradited, therefore we request a different one. Is that is that a possibility, an option that's open to them? Well, actually, when Assange was first taken from the embassy in 2019, he was taken straight to a court and did make a comment about Lady Arbuthnot, who was then the chief magistrate who was ruling on the case and about conflicts of interest. And he was slapped down by the presiding judge saying, you can't say that kind of thing in a courtroom, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. 
his defense team have never gone on record about the conflicts of interest. And I think that's a tactical thing. I think they think that if you start attacking the process itself, you have even less chance than they've currently got of getting their client free. But in the case of Lady Arbuthnot, she did eventually step aside, but not this wasn't publicly released. There was a, there was an article in Private Eye where they got a comment from Westminster chief magistrates where they said um, she stepped aside because of, quote, a perception of bias, but didn't admit a conflict of interest. That means the defence team can't revisit her previous rulings. There were two in 2018 against Assange. So, and then in the case of the High Court judge, Lord Chief Justice Burnett, who who reversed the, the lower court decision on the extradition in December and green-lighted Assange's extradition to the US, his connection with Alan Duncan, which was revealed in Alan Duncan's diaries last year, we published that story at Declassified. It wasn't picked up by one mainstream newspaper. So the legal system has never had to answer any of these questions. And that's part of the point. Media silence is how they get away with it. If any of the stories we've done in Declassified, which is which we've done over a number of years now, revealing conflicts of interest and irregularities in this case, if any of them had appeared in The Guardian or The Times, it could have had a big impact on the case and changed the course. The point is the legal system has never had to answer for it because they can ignore it because we're a small organisation. It doesn't have the outreach of, of the mainstream media. So I think that that's why you haven't seen this kind of come out into the open. Even when the Yahoo News article came out last year, which if viewers aren't aware of it, it was a story based on testimony from 30 former US officials who went on record saying that the CIA had drawn up plans to assassinate Assange in London and that the British had, quote, agreed to do the shooting. That hardly got picked up anywhere in the UK media. And you're thinking in this civilised society, if you have 30 former officials saying that their government plotted to murder a journalist on in your country because they didn't like his reporting, you think that, you'd think that that might be quite a big deal. You might call in the ambassador it might be the leading BBC News. The only section of BBC that covered it was BBC Somalia. So the only people in the world that knew that the, if, if, if the BBC was their source of news that would have known that the US had plotted to kill Assange in London were, were Somali-speaking BBC readers. So that's what we're dealing with. It's, a, it's been massively relegated as an issue. And of course, that is outrageous because it's not just about Assange. This is about all of us. If they get Assange for publishing documents, secret documents that expose them and expose their war crimes, that precedent will be used going forward against anyone would mean for the future of freedom in America and the world, because it gives the US license to go anywhere in the world and pluck some journalists or publishers that are publishing stuff they don't like and bring them to the US. And in the case of that story, or assassinate them on the streets of London. And if you read the article, basically what happened when the Trump administration came in, Pompeo was CIA director, and he's famously hawkish. Many of the the um, obstacles to, to assassination and, and other extreme um, measures went out the window with Pompeo because he didn't care. One of the quotes from, from the officials said, at that point, they smelled blood. So they were like, let's sort out this problem once and for all. Remember that the, the WikiLeaks releases started in 2010. He'd been in the embassy for a long time, and obviously they were really, really pissed off and wanted to do something about him. They couldn't get him out of the embassy. So they thought, well, let's go to plan B. And of course, the CIA have a long history of assassinating people that they don't like. So that's what happened. Actually, the article is quite ambiguous about how far the plan went. So we don't know, is in answer to your question. It could have been that the plan accelerated massively. A huge part of that story, which was ignored, which was even more outrageous and crazy, 
is that the British agreed to do the shooting. That's a verbatim quote. You're talking about the British authorities colluding with a foreign power to kill a journalist, potentially kill a journalist on the streets of London because they didn't like his reporting. It's so insane. But yet no media reported it. There was a parliamentary question asked of the Home Office about this, because obviously the Home Office is responsible for our security overseas, MI5, etc. So the, the parliamentary question was, has the Home Office had any conversations with US counterparts about reports that the US was planning to kill Assange in London? The Home Office replied, we haven't had a single conversation with our US counterparts about that report. They don't care. So the UK is involved hugely in this and is not defending or hasn't been defending Assange. And then obviously that I think that transposes over to the judicial system as well. So you have the, the whole of machinery of the UK state acting on behalf of the US state to, to get this guy and punish him because they want to send a message. Because Assange did land blows on the US empire, which is the most powerful country in the world and the most violent country. He landed blows and they, they want to send a message that you're not allowed to do that. But I think that we shouldn't hold out any hope within the UK judicial system because it's shown itself again and again that it's just going to it's going to do what it's told effectively. I, I'm not saying that there's someone talking to it in a judge's ear, although that may be happening. But there's obviously clear pressure being brought because there's all sorts of irregularities. There's, if you tell people that it's on record that the CIA through a Spanish security company was spying on Assange. And that it's on record that 30 former US officials have come out and said that the CIA was plotting to assassinate Assange in London. No normal trial, no normal extradition would carry on in that situation. But this isn't a normal extradition. In fact, if you look back at even in, in the Ellsberg case, which was a huge leak in the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers, his case, he was facing life in prison for, for revealing the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. His case was thrown out in the end because it came out that the Nixon administration had burg burglarized his psychiatrist's office to get dirt to smear him in the media. And that whole trial collapsed. What's been done to Assange and what's come out and what's on record as being done to Assange is much worse than that. But the case is still robust. The case is going through the courts. And today the courts sent it to the Home Secretary for final approval. That was Matt Kennard from Declassified UK. And after that interview, I returned to the Yahoo article he, he mentioned about the CIA plan to kill Assange. It was released in September last year, but perhaps surprisingly, given the subject matter, it never received much traction. The explosive claims that the CIA planned to abduct or kill Assange were based on testimony from 30 former US officials who were concerned about the Trump administration's relaxed approach to the law. Yahoo News reported, some senior officials inside the CIA and the Trump administration discussed killing Assange, going so far as to request sketches or options for how to assassinate him. Discussions over kidnapping or killing Assange occurred, quote, at the highest levels of the Trump administration, said a former senior counterintelligence official. Quote, there seemed to be no boundaries. They go on. The conversations were part of an unprecedented CIA campaign directed against WikiLeaks and its founder. The agency's multi-pronged plans also included extensive spying on WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among the group's members, and stealing their electronic devices. While Assange had been on the radar of US intelligence agencies for years, these plans for an all-out war against him were sparked by WikiLeaks' ongoing publication of extraordinarily sensitive CIA hacking tools, known collectively as Vault 7, which the agency ultimately concluded represented the, quote, largest data loss in CIA history. 
President Trump's newly installed CIA director, Mike Pompeo, was seeking revenge on WikiLeaks and Assange, who had sought refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy since 2012 to avoid extradition to Sweden on rape allegations he denied. Pompeo and other top agency leaders were, quote, completely detached from reality because they were so embarrassed about Vault 7, said a former Trump national security official. They were seeing blood. So in short, Trump's CIA director was so annoyed about WikiLeaks hacking his organization that his agents sketched out plans to have him killed, to have Assange killed. The Yahoo piece is also interesting in giving context to Pompeo's 2017 statement that WikiLeaks constitutes a hostile intelligence agency. You might remember him having said that. And and apparently that was key because it meant the CIA could make these wild plans and take other actions against WikiLeaks without congressional approval. Now, given this is the country we're apparently extraditing Assange to, this should be much, much bigger news than it has been, especially as Trump and his gang could easily be back in control of the country in less than three years' time. So our court system As Matt explained, there should be plenty of reasons to be concerned about its impartiality in this case. Our court system has decided it's perfectly appropriate to extradite someone to the United States for doing journalism, even when the intelligence agency of that state has had high-level conversations about extrajudicially killing the guy. They've decided, no, this this is a perfectly legitimate place to send him. And part of that story, there were clearly people within the American deep state who didn't want to do this. You know, that's why they're giving this story to Yahoo. I imagine those guys probably have the upper hand on this particular thing now that Biden is president. But as I say, Donald Trump could be president again in three years' time. You could have another Mike Pompeo type as director of the CIA. And we'll have just extradited this guy to be at the mercy of this country and this group of people. So it is completely phenomenal. And as Matt said, incredibly underreported, especially as, you know, I, I don't like to talk about Twitter too much on this show. But if you ever witness the sort of flame wars that happen on there, one of the ongoing patterns that emerge is how much collective solidarity there is between pundits. This is why everyone's always incredibly angry at Owen Jones, because Owen Jones disagrees with lots of pundits. You're not supposed to be rude to other pundits because they're within your club. And people get very, very, very annoyed. But when it comes to someone who's actually done, you know, a significant groundbreaking piece of journalism, which serves an enormous public interest, published by The Guardian, published by The New York Times. This wasn't just a blog. It was published in the mainstream media. There's silence. Now, you get much, much more outrage from Britain's media class if you say something mean about someone who wrote a negative article that was sort of marginalizing trans people. If you say something mean to them on Twitter, suddenly they're, they're all clubbing together. This is a huge story. There are hundreds of comment pieces and medium blogs people turning up to talk about it on Sky. When it comes to someone who's actually done public interest journalism, silence, nada. And it is. I mean, it's a disgrace. This guy, whether or not he gets extradited in the next year or so, my understanding is that this could roll on for ages because he can appeal based on different arguments to the appeal he most recently tried to do to the Supreme Court. There there could be more stages to this, but he already has essentially remained incarcerated for for 12 years. So the message this is sending or 10 years, I think, the message this is sending is don't publish state secrets, even if they're in the public interest and they're leaked to you by someone from within those departments, which has been standard practice and one of the most important parts of journalism for, for decades. Next story. Boris Johnson receiving a fine from the Met Police has meant Partygate has stayed at the top of the news. 
And that has inevitably meant more government ministers are making fools of themselves on national television. This is Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis. The police have looked into this particular issue. They've taken a view that a fine should be issued. He, he accepts that. He has paid that fine. Um, he's apologised for that. But does he, he accept he that he the broke the rules? Matter. Well, he's accepted that the police have said that the rules were broken and therefore no, no, but does he fine. accept that he broke but that the is rules. very different to, well, it is very different that's why i'm asking you to point. clarify he, it the point he made to parliament was that when he spoke to parliament he was speaking what he believed to be the truth and what he outlined to be the truth that is absolutely right and proper but does he but accept also, that he now broke the rules as he, he said made. last week he absolutely accepts the police have found that the, the rules were broken to a point not that the they issued a fine but it is because that's why he's paid the fine the and he has outlined that he accepts that no does he accept that he broke the rules well, in the sense he's paid a fine that the police have decided it's issued because the rules were broken. Has he accepted that he broke the rules? He's accepted that the police have found the rules were broken. He's asked again and again the same evasive answer. And the obvious implication seems to be that while Boris Johnson accepts the police have fined him, which is a bit like accepting the sun rose this morning, it's just it's a simple factual claim, it'd be impossible to deny that one. He does not accept they were right to fine him. And hence the obvious implication, he's not sure if he actually broke any law. And my response here is this should be a pretty big deal. Not just because it seems like Johnson is shirking responsibility. We've seen that many a time. But rather because he seems to be suggesting the police have got this one wrong. And given thousands of people have received similar COVID fines, if the police had a tendency to wrongly give them out, that could point to a serious miscarriage of justice. It could be Thousands of people who've been fined when they didn't actually break the rules. That should be the implication of what Boris Johnson seems to be saying. And that should concern the Prime Minister. If he's suspicious, there's been this enormous miscarriage of justice. Why aren't we seeing an investigation into this? Why aren't we seeing an inquiry into this? Who else might have been unjustly fined? We need to know. Or is he just being completely opportunistic and knows that he did, in fact, break the rules? Let's look at another part of that interview. We've had prime ministers in the past have penalty notices, from what I can see, and we've also had Which front ones? bench ministers. Well, I saw there was a, a parking notice that Tony Blair had once. We've seen front bench so Labour ministers. A parking, and, and, no, and no, 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 you make the point. Gov- government so you ministers think as well the, prime, the previous prime minister having a parking fine is in any way uh, correlated to our prime minister making COVID rules when the country was in lockdown? 120-odd thousand people have died, and you can make the comparison between the two? You're saying to me... No, I'm asking somebody, you yeah, if yeah, you no, can. You, you asked me if somebody who sets the laws and the rules can also be somebody who breaks rules. That clearly has happened with a number of ministers over the years. But Tony Blair didn't make the rules change. on parking. Well, the, the government is responsible for all of the rules and regulations, so you could argue that governments don't pass um, this, some of the specific local fines on parking, but still, if a parking fine is broken, it's still a law of the country. Are you completely so, comfortable making the comparisons with parking fines well, and what the I'm Prime Minister did? I'm just making the point. That no, I'm just asking if yeah, you well, are, in, in all sincerity. That, yeah, absolutely, in the sense that ministers in the past have sadly been subject to getting fixed penalty notices on a range of issues. I want to bring in someone who can string together an argument much more effectively than Brandon Lewis. Dahlia Gabriel, what did you make of that? Is it the same, Tony Blair getting a parking fine and Boris Johnson breaking lockdown rules? That was a a mind-numbing clip. It was like truly uh, mind-numbing. And nothing screams political crisis, like a minister going on to defend the indefensible whilst the word liar and untrustworthy is basically like projected in huge letters on the screen above him. So there's clearly a shady producer there at Sky News, which I'm not complaining about. But obviously, in terms of Blair's parking ticket, 
it's apples and oranges. Like I'm not jumping to defend Blair on anything really, but this isn't about the fixed penalty notice or the fine. It's about the gratuitousness of the double standards, the lying, the hypocrisy, and the contempt for the integrity of public health messaging. That is what the public are angry about. And trying to remove that context and draw out these like very technical comparisons is a way of ministers like Brandon Lewis avoiding the actual heart of this matter, which is why are working class people living in a fundamentally different world to those in power? And that's what the pandemic in its entirety really brought to the surface. Why are we held to higher standards? Why are we having our lives increasingly over-policed and over-surveilled, but also at the same time underfunded and crippled in so many other ways, whilst the wallets of the rich get fatter, their behavior even more unaccountable? Like, That is what this scandal is really speaking to. It's not the technicality of what is and isn't a fixed penalty notice. And Brandon Lewis is very aware of that. And that's why he's trying to focus on this by drawing out very irrelevant facts about Tony Blair's driving habits. But we also have to ask ourselves why, you know, this is one of many videos that we have now seen of Tory MPs just going on television and being willing to debase themselves and humiliate themselves in defense of this prime minister. Well, it's because this kind of behavior is the tip of a very large iceberg of corruption and shamelessness that defines the government and Tory governments in particular before them. In fact, it would be almost strange and ridiculous for Brandon Lewis to hold any kind of moral high ground in this story, given that this is the same Brandon Lewis who, in his role as housing minister, actively rejected calls to increase fire and safety regulations in high-rise public buildings and specifically rejected the mandating of sprinklers, which, had they been installed in the Grenfell Tower as the residents asked for it to be installed, um, would have saved the block and its inhabitants. It's the same Brandon Lewis who claims astronomical amounts of hotel accommodation expenses in London, even though he literally owns two houses that are less than an hour away from London. So this is not a man who is particularly interested in building a fair world or building a world in which people like him have to operate by the same rules as everyone else. And this is true for his class as a whole. And so the only value gluing these people together is I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And for whatever reason, it's behind closed doors. We don't know the negotiations that are taking place. But for whatever reason, the bulk of Tory MPs feel like their back is being scratched by Boris Johnson right now. So until that fact expires, they will indulge in as much double speak and gaslighting and straight up lying that they need to in order to grease the wheels of this machine. Yes, I was thinking a bit more about the comparison because obviously, you know, what Kay Burley picks up on is that the difference is Tony Blair didn't write the parking rules that they're set locally and they're not the kind of things that prime ministers get involved in. But the lockdown rules, they were written in Downing Street. You know, they were very centralized and that went to the top of government. So Boris Johnson was much more implicated in that law than Tony Blair was when it came to anyone who received a parking fixed penalty notice, and apparently he did at one point in time. The other difference, though, is if you remember those posters that were 
put up around about you know the time when these rules were being broken, which said, if you bend the rules, essentially someone might die. You've got these pictures, these tragic pictures of people who are getting oxygen, people who look on death's door, and they say, to even bend the rules, you're essentially helping kill people. That was the message from the government. They said bending the rules mattered. I don't know about anyone else, but I've never seen a poster that say, if you park in the wrong place, someone's going to die. You know, I've never seen a, a poster where you've got this, this dying person and they say, you might think it's okay to park in the wrong place, but it's not. That's never happened because the government had a completely different approach to these rules, which Boris Johnson broke, to any government has ever had when it comes to parking. So these two things are not the same. And it is, it's just so gaslighty the way they say, oh no, this wasn't a big deal. Obviously, everyone bent the rules. We were shown posters day after day and politicians going up and speaking to us from Downing Street lecterns day after day saying, bending the rules is the worst thing you can do. What you have to do to stop people dying is follow them to the letter. And now, a year later, now Boris Johnson has broken them all. So he's like, oh, only an idiot would follow them to the letter. It's, it stinks. Next story. In the Commons debate on Boris Johnson receiving a Partygate fine, Keir Starmer won plaudits for this intervention. This morning, I spoke to John Robinson, a constituent of the member for Litchfield. I want to tell you his story. When his wife died of COVID, John and his family obeyed the Prime Minister's rules. He didn't see her in hospital. He didn't hold her hand as she died. Their daughters and grandchildren drove 100 miles up the motorway, clutching a letter from the funeral director in case they were questioned by the police. They didn't have a service in the church. John's son-in-law stayed away because he would have been the forbidden seventh mourner. Doesn't the Prime Minister realise that John would have given the world to hold his dying wife's hand, even if it was just for nine minutes? But he didn't because he followed the Prime Minister's rules. Rules that we now know the Prime Minister blithely, repeatedly and deliberately ignored. After months of insulting excuses, today's half-hearted apology will never be enough for John Robinson. If the Prime Minister had any respect for John and the millions like him who sacrificed everything to follow the rules, he'd resign. As Keir Starmer said there, John Robinson is a constituent of Litchfield, which means he's lucky enough to have Michael Fabricant as his local MP. And speaking to GB News, Michael Fabricant hit back. The saddest thing of all, I think, is the way that Keir Starmer and other politicians have chosen to weaponize the personal tragedies endured by people like John Robinson And, you know, I would have thought, actually, that was pretty beneath him. That was Michael Fabricant, who just last week said Boris Johnson's parties weren't a problem because nurses and teachers had also got pissed in their staff rooms during the pandemic. He provided no evidence for that claim. Dahlia, is Michael Fabricant a good judge of what actions, what arguments are and are not beneath certain politicians? Do a deep condition on that wig, first of all, before you come for anyone else's behaviour. Those split ends are looking very, very raggedy. But in terms of this weaponising grief, I mean, what a low blow, right? Keir Starmer was bringing the reality 
of the situation, the stark contrast between how this pandemic was experienced by the very powerful and how it was experienced by working class people. He was bringing that into sharp relief in the House of Commons by reading that letter. And I'm sure that Johnson and Fabrican and all of all of that kind of motley crew do a lot to protect themselves from the pesky details of working class suffering. But I want to also specifically commend um, that, that constituents for in the fog and the rage of his grief, so brilliantly articulating how so many of us feel as this scandal unfolds. So that response by Fabrican and Johnson, given that this is the reality of the situation, that response that merely bringing these facts into the Houses of Parliament is political point scoring tells us a lot about how detached they really are from how this is being experienced on the ground. It tells us that to them, this entire scenario is just a game of political point scoring. It's a political game where points are to be scored and missed, but not much else is really at stake. And that's the lens through which they are reading people's very angry and legitimate responses as this scandal unfolds. But if you actually also watch the the original segment in Parliament when uh, Keir Starmer read out this letter, it really is something to consider that the line of defence that Johnson used in response to, to Keir Starmer reading out that letter was to label it a personal attack and to say that Starmer should be focusing on real issues instead of this letter from this constituent, real issues like Russia and Ukraine. That is the definition, actually, of weaponizing grief. Johnson there, as he has routinely done throughout this scandal, weaponized the trauma and the violence that is being experienced by an entire population, bringing it into a conversation where it has no relevance, merely as a way to deflect from his own behavior. I don't think that the Ukrainian population will be particularly impressed or happy with the fact that the occupation of their land is being used in order to try and fob off criticism of the prime minister for holding parties and going to parties in the middle of lockdown and then lying to the British public about them. That's a cheap weaponizing of grief, not the mere bringing of the stark reality of this pandemic in full view in Parliament, which is absolutely where it should be. It's a super important comparison, the way that he has always tried to bring up Ukraine to say, no, don't scrutinize me for this. There are more important things going on. You know, I'm sure, you know, I, I doubt Ukrainians have too much time at the moment to be you know, annoyed that he's bringing that up in Parliament. Although I suppose maybe, maybe some of the, the people who've come to claim asylum here are, are watching PMQs, I'm not sure. But what is clear and what's definitely the case is it was clear from Keir Starmer's speech that he'd spoken to this guy, John Robinson, right? So yeah, I don't know if you've got a letter from him or whatever, but he's saying he spoke to him that morning. Clearly, he was aware that this argument was going to be brought up in Parliament to make the point. Like, I, I imagine that guy had essentially given Keir Starmer permission to do that and felt very well represented by the fact that his story was was put forward there to put across how outraged, especially bereaved people, are about how, how Boris Johnson behaved and how he has responded to him being found out. So it's very difficult to say, oh, it was weaponizing something. It was beneath him when the person who he was referencing wanted to be used in that way or wanted their story to be used in that way, I should say. And yeah, I, I, I doubt Boris Johnson, well, you can't get permission from a whole nation of people, but I doubt Boris Johnson has got permission from many Ukrainians to use their plight as a cheap reason, a cheap excuse 
to move on from scrutiny of his own disgraceful actions. Next story. Boris Johnson's row with the Church of England is not going away. That's because in a meeting with Tory MPs, which followed his apology to Parliament for lockdown rule breaking, he attacked the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Telegraph report, Mr Johnson told Conservative MPs that the BBC and the Archbishop were, quote, less vociferous in their criticism of the Russian president than they were of plans to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Addressing Tory backbenchers at a private meeting, he said the Rwanda deal was a good policy and claimed it had been misconstrued by the BBC and senior members of the clergy. It's not made clear how it was supposedly misconstrued. I'm, I don't think the Tory press officers managed to find anything um, that the Archbishop of, of Canterbury said that was not factual. So I suppose they're saying it was misconstrued because they don't like it and we think everyone should like it. The church has hit back. They've said they have been categorical in their opposition to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So they're essentially, um, I think they've explicitly said actually that Boris Johnson is, is trying to smear them. And Keir Starmer seems to think this split between the church and the Tories could provide an opportunity for Labour. He brought the row up at PMQs. Would the Prime Minister like to take this opportunity to apologise for slandering the Archbishop and the Church of England? Mr Speaker, I, I think the, 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 the right honourable gentleman, uh, I, I, was, I was slightly taken aback to be uh, for the gov- Sorry, Mr. Speaker, I was slightly taken aback for the government to be criticised over the uh, policy that we have uh, devised to uh, end, the, end the, the deaths at sea in the Channel as a result of cruel criminal gangs. I, I was surprised uh, to be a, to, that we were attacked for that. And actually, Mr. Speaker, it turns out that that policy, do you know who proposed that policy, uh, first of all, in, in 2004? It was David Blunkett, uh, Mr. Speaker. Who said it was a 21st, yes it was, and she'll remember, a 21st century solution to the problems of illegal asylum seeking and immigration. Uh, he should stick with, he's a Corbyn Easter, he's a Corbyn Easter in a smart Islington suit. That's the truth. I think you'll find Mr Corbyn doesn't have the whip, but I think that's a no then. Pathetic, he, he never takes responsibility for his words or actions. Dahlia, I want to bring you in on this because I hated everyone and everything in that clip. <laughs> what did you make of it? It is quite strange for me to actually, I think that Boris Johnson was right in that clip. He, by pointing out the complicity of the Labour Party in the policies, in the trajectory that led us to this policy, that is historically accurate. This Rwanda policy is a policy that has been years and years in the making, and it's actually becoming increasingly standard, particularly for imperial nation states. Uh, the EU has long been making plans to outsource and externalize its border to what they call transit countries. The, the US made the building of internment camps and detention camps condition for countries in the global south to receive so-called development aid. Uh, so that's essentially bribing countries of the global south to participate in this global industry of incarceration. So this latest policy is an escalation of existing trends, and it's a trend that is likely to accelerate as displacement becomes increasingly endemic in our society, whether it's because of political conflict, or the knock-on effects of climate breakdown or, or what have you. And so 
all of this kind of solidarity and outrage, we needed this at the very beginning um, of the process in which this started to happen. And that is my frustration, really, with, with the Labour Party in particular here, because the Labour Party, as Boris Johnson points out, has historically contributed to this idea that migrants are less than human, uh, that human rights shouldn't apply to them. They began the trope of the bogus asylum seeker, which encouraged the public to view asylum seekers not as people for whom we should have empathy and solidarity, but as people that we should be suspicious of, that should be criminalised and punished. Uh, We can't forget that Labour built multiple detention centres, including Yarlswood, where detained pregnant women are experiencing stillbirths uh, and miscarriages because of the appalling conditions uh, in which they are held, all for the crime of moving to another place in order to make a better life for themselves. That's a decision that most of us in our lives will do at some point. And so that is the original sin, that creation of enclaves of exclusion in which migrants exist. That is the original sin of which this grotesque policy, which will result in the systemic and violent human rights abuses um, of people, is simply an escalation of what has existed before, which Labour and the Tories uh, have both been complicit in. And Boris Johnson is also right to say that Corbynism does not reflect the history of the Labour Party. And maybe if it did, we wouldn't be in this situation. It was a super interesting exchange. I mean, as you say, Boris Johnson there did did have a point. And if that was Jeremy Corbyn who had, who had been speaking to, Jeremy Corbyn would have said, like, look, I agree with you on New Labour. I voted against those policies. I actually have some, you know, I, I'm not like everyone else in this building. I am pretty consistent. And a bunch of people would have got annoyed about it. A bunch of people would have been attracted to it and it would have appealed to them. On this, Keir Starmer took the opposite route, which is to essentially say, I am aligned with New Labour and I'm nothing like Jeremy Corbyn, that guy behind me. There were lots of people, I saw lots of sort of centrists on Twitter say, oh, it was so desperate to see that Boris Johnson had said that Keir Starmer was Jeremy Corbyn in a suit. Now, I don't think Keir Starmer is Jeremy Corbyn in a suit. We've, we've seen that that is kind of the opposite of what he has proved to be. But he did actually position himself as Jeremy Corbyn with a suit. When he stood to be Labour leader, what he was saying to people was, look, what I can do is I'll, 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 I'll keep the radicalism of Jeremy Corbyn, but what I'll do is I will dress it up in a smarter way and I will look more professional and I will be more electable with fundamentally quite similar politics. What did he do? He gets into power. He lets all his right-wing people take up these positions in the, the highest echelons of the party. And now as he's bragging in the House of Commons... He suspended the whip from his predecessor, who he was full of praise for in those, well, especially in, in, in those first leadership hustings, which we've shown you um, a number of times before, just because the difference between how he speaks now and how he speaks then is so, so striking. Dahlia, I suppose, finally, where do you think this question of Boris Johnson trying to call Keir Starmer Jeremy Corbyn is going to go? Do, do you think people are going to buy it? Because, I mean, I, I, I assume the strategists around Keir Starmer are pretty pleased that they can respond to this because they are pitching to a kind of voter who probably didn't like Jeremy Corbyn very much. And now they're saying, look, we've got nothing to do with the guy. We have suspended the whip. How is this going to play out, do you think? Well, I don't think that it's going to necessarily win him many voters. I think the people that would have been won over are probably won over by the extremely harsh and outrageous way in which Jeremy Corbyn has been treated. What I think it will do is further alienate 
the working class people, the people of color, the young people who were mobilized into the Labour Party project under Jeremy Corbyn, who gave their vote and trusted their vote with, for Keir Starmer uh, on the grounds that he would carry forward at least some of those principles. I don't think anyone, I mean, I didn't trust him from the start, never trust a cop. I think even the most optimistic Keir Starmer supporter didn't expect him to carry the entirety of Corbynism forward, but they expected at least, you know, at least a, some shade of it. And so I think this, again, that kind of cheap joke uh, at an act that really, you know, the suspension of, of Jeremy Corbyn, which is an act that was a real slap in the face for a lot of those people that became engaged into the project through Corbynism, a real message that, you know, not only are you not welcome here, but we actually have nothing but contempt for you. That process of alienating those people, of continuing to alienate those people, I don't understand how that can become part of a viable electoral strategy because young people, working class people, people of color have always been and are always going to be essential to an electoral victory for Labour. And I think now they're drawing very, they've always taken those voters for granted, but now that line in the sand is being drawn real clearly. So I don't know how that's going to, to play out um, in the next election. I don't know if that gamble is going to pay off. And I can't say that I'm particularly interested in what the Labour Party have to say at the moment. <laughs> One thing the Labour Party are not at the moment is interesting. <laughs> so it's sometimes difficult as a journalist because yeah, one, one thing you can say about the Labour Party, they are boring right now. Potentially, you know, I, I don't think their strategy is completely crazy. I do think it's incredibly offensive to, you know, a huge section of the, the population, which I think is very risky and fundamentally wrong. But we will come back to this on future shows. Dahlia Gabriel, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening. We'll be back on Friday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.